speak a moment to the married couples in the church. And first, I want to speak to the men. What I'd like you to do is to think back upon the time when you met the one. When you knew this was the one. Now, for some of us, that memory may be just a few years past and maybe a little bit longer for others. But think how you felt, the joy that you felt. That when that person walked into the room, there was, it could be a room of a thousand people, but there was only one. There could be a thousand people singing, and you could pick out that one voice. And then remember how it was that you prepared for that famous invitation. You were going to pop the question. Maybe your mouth started to get a little dry, like mine is right now. And you pop the question, and you tell this love of your life how you love them, that you can't live without them, the joy that they bring to you. Will you marry me? And I'm going to flip it to the ladies. When he asked that question, what was it like for you? But now I want to add something to it. Now, I'm not a very poetic man, so I can't come up with flowery words. Maybe, maybe you talked about how her hair shone in the moon and the sun, and her eyes sparkled like the stars of the sky, or whatever kind of flowery language. And you made this proposal and you poured your heart out to her. And then you told her afterwards, by the way, if you reject my proposal, I'm going to torture you for the rest of your life. Not a very nice proposal, is it? But do you understand that that's exactly what Christianity today portrays to the world? If you don't accept my forgiveness, I'm going to cast you into a lake of fire where I'm going to burn and torture you for all eternity. Is it any wonder why Paul, the apostle, declared that God's name is blasphemed because of whom? The Gentiles, the unbelievers? or because of the believers. I would submit to you that the primary theme of the Bible is centered on one thing and one thing only. And I got news for you. It's not about us. There's a controversy of the character of God. A controversy which began where? In heaven. And it moved to earth. And what is the center of that controversy? We could elaborate it in many ways. But I prefer the Apostle John's, how he described God's character, how he came to know God through Jesus. Now, I'm going to read a lot of scriptures today, and I want to preface this. Are you familiar with the idea of of taking a panorama shot? This is when you stand back and and you take in the entire scene, the entire landscape, going from left to right. I'm going to read a lot of scripture today. I'm not asking you necessarily to grasp every single verse. What I want you to do, however, is I want you to catch the panorama. I want you to catch the theme, the recurring theme, over and over and over again. Listen how the Apostle John describes the character. We know these words very well. 1 John 4, 8. He who does not love does not know God. For what? For God is love. He repeats it later, and we have known and believed the love of God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in his love abides in God and God in him. How many times did Jesus use the term love? Here are just a few. Jesus said to them, if God, reading from John 8, if God were your father, you would love me. Who is he speaking to? the Jewish people who are awaiting the Messiah. If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another 
But he adds this, because that was actually an Old Testament requirement, wasn't it? But he adds a new twist. As I have loved you, you, you also love one another. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Greater love is that no man than he lay his life down for his friends. When Peter, after the resurrection, was there confronted with Jesus, sitting around the fire, Jesus said to him, Simon, the third time, son of Jonah, do you love me? I have a question for you. What was Peter worried about? Was he worried that all his sins were forgiven? Or was he worried and more concerned that his relationship with Jesus was still intact? Think about that. This principle of love is not a New Testament idea. In John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Do you know where Jesus was quoting from in the Old Testament? You know, it's fascinating because I've asked this question numerous times. And you know what frightens me? Not only do most Christians not know where it's being quoted from, I've encountered pastors, even pastors from our own community of faith who do not know. And if you're wondering, I'll read it to you. It comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The very covenant that God spoke at Mount Sinai. When Jesus was questioned about the law, where did he quote from? He quoted Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, You shall what? Love the Lord your God. With how much? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, how much? All of the law and the prophets are based on hang from. So how much of the law is based on love? According to Jesus, all. And this includes the Ten Commandments. God is love. Love requires what? That there be trust in the other. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, what was broken? The bond of trust. And God, since then, has been doing everything beyond what we can even possibly conceive to restore that trust, that we simply trust God. Perfection of Abraham was that he what? That he believed God. And that was considered to him righteousness. By your heads, gracious Heavenly Father. If there are any hardened hearts here today, I know I am nothing but a breath. Nothing good in me. But may the words that are spoken from you, that you have spoken in past, penetrate. If there's any hardened hearts here, may it smash through it. For the time is running out. Let us all take in deep reflection about our own personal relationship with you. Look not to the left, look not to the right, not even look up to here to the pulpit, but reflect on what your relationship is with Jesus, because you are the one that we are to abide by. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God is love. Question. Is love a legal term? that you would find in a court of law? Or is, it a, or is it a relational term, a term of endearment? Love is relational, we understand that. But did you know that grace is also relational? Yet how 
do we typically present grace? Do we present grace within our framework of a relationship? Or does this scenario sound familiar? On the day of judgment, there's going to be a judge, and, and Jesus is our defense attorney, and, and Jesus is going to stand and say, I have paid. What kind of a setting have you heard? You know, last year about this time, I gave a sermon called Grace in the Everlasting Covenant. And in it, I walked through the scriptures, and granted, it was a lot to take in on how there was not one covenant principle at work in the New Testament, but two. And only when you married those two together, pun intended, did you actually get the full understanding and compass of all of God's character, of his grace. The principles were that of a marriage and that of a last will and testament. Question in marriage, and it's fascinating. I usually get the same answer all the time on this one. When is grace needed in a marriage? Yeah, I heard someone say it always, all the time. Is grace needed in a marriage when everything is going well or when a relationship has somehow been damaged? And if, it, if the, the offended spouse and the offender, if the offender comes and says, I'm sorry, I want to make this up, and you in your heart finds a way to forgive, what is the purpose of that grace? Is it so if the spouse was unfaithful, whether it be with their affections or whether it be with money or whatever it happens to be with the time? Is it so that that unfaithful spouse can remain unfaithful? Or is it given for the healing and restoration of the heart? I mentioned earlier this morning that the power of the gospel was not found in forgiveness of sin. I want that to sink in. The power of the gospel is not in the forgiveness of sin. The power of the gospel is the transformed heart in response to that sin. What did Jesus say? If you are not born again, you, help me, cannot. Not my not. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Today we're going to take a closer look at this covenant principles of marriage. The relationship between Christ and the church and its parallels to end times. The principles of marriage are sprinkled throughout the New Testament. I mentioned earlier we're going to take a panoramic view and get ready and hold on because I'm going to go very quickly through these. My, my intent here is not for you to focus on the individual stories per se, but to grasp the continuity, the picture is being painted the tapestry that's being woven. John, the disciples of John came, saying to him, Why do you and the Pharisees fast often, but do your disciples not fast? This was the Pharisees. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Who? The bridegroom. Jesus gave a parable of the wedding garments. Reading from Matthew 22, I'm going to read verses 11 through 13. But when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man who did not have on what? If you're familiar with the parable, wedding garments. So he said to him, friend, how did you come here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot. Take him away, cast him out into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I could give a series of sermons on this parable, because it is the cornerstone of the gospel. What do the garments in scriptures represent? What are those wedding garments? Because that's the secret in understanding the meaning of this parable. The prophet Isaiah tells us that. I'm sure you're familiar with the verse. All our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. I want you to ponder on that for a moment. 
I want you. Don't look at your neighbor. Don't look at me. Don't think of the pastor. Don't think of anybody else. You. Think of all the good works that you've done. Think of all the times you've come to church. All the times that you've come to prayer meeting. All the years that maybe you served in a ministry in a church. Take all of them. Package them all together. And what do you come up with? The prophet Isaiah called them. The English Bible sometimes doesn't do the word of God justice. He calls them menstrual rags. Filthy and bloody. Because see, if we're honest with ourselves... And that, I don't know about you, is sometimes difficult to do. Even our good deeds are sometimes cloaked in selfishness. What would the church think if I don't do this? If I don't go to Sabbath today, it's a sermon. What are people going to think if I didn't come to church? What are people going to think if I don't do this or if I don't do that? Perhaps we're worried about what else... Somebody else thinks, or maybe we sit back and think that if I do this, God is going to pat me on the back and say, good and faithful servant, well done. What do those wedding garments represent? Jeremiah thirty-three sixteen. There's probably one verse that you probably should turn there to. I invite you to turn to this one. Jeremiah 33, verse 16. When you're there, say amen. Jeremiah 33, 16, and he says, In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely, and this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord, what? Our righteousness. Those wedding garments are not our righteousness. We have none. I'm not trying to demean us and get us to feel bad. What I'm trying to do is to wake us up and to understand it is not about me. It is not about you. It is all about him. Salvation is all about what God has done for us, not what we do for him. Paul grasped this. Go read 1 Corinthians 13 when you get a chance. Reread it. And then I ask you as you go through it, think of all of the deeds Paul talks about. And ask yourself, is there anything wrong with any of the deeds? I speak in tongues. I have the gift of prophecy. I give all my belongings. I let myself be burned. But what did Paul say? If you don't have love, it is all for naught. If your heart is not transformed, if your motive is not pure, it is still filthy rags. We know about the parable of the ten virgins. The midnight cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. The wedding is a major theme in the Gospel of John. The first miracle that Jesus performed was where? At a wedding feast. When John the Baptist was approached, he said, should not the, you know, how can, I must decrease so that he can increase. This is how the joy of the friend of the bridegroom is fulfilled, to see him magnified. John understood and knew his place, his role, the work that God had given him, and he fulfilled it even unto death. Later, Jesus ties on the whole concept of marriage. Be one as I and the Father are one. When two come together, what is it supposed to be? They become one. Paul uses the theme of marriage as well as a teaching tool. He actually compares the Old and the New Covenant in Romans 7 to marriage, that you need to divorce the old before you can marry the new, that the old actually has to die. What was the old covenant? What was the flaw of the old covenant? 
Was the problem with the covenant? Or was it the problem with the people? Because, see, the people, if you go back and you read Exodus, and you read chapter 19, you will find, where did God actually speak the covenant? In chapter 20, we find it. When did the people say, I do? Before the law was even spoken. Before the covenant was even given. They said, we will do all the Lord can do. But that's the problem. We can't. That was the message of circumcision. Remember, Abraham was given a promise that he would be the father of a great nation, but he had a problem. He didn't have an heir. And God had promised him and said that there an heir will come from your own loins. Abraham waited and waited and finally decided to take matters into his own hands. It was only after Abraham went to Hagar and had Ishmael that God then implemented the sign of the the covenant, circumcision. Do you understand the meaning of circumcision? Every time Abraham would circumcise a male, it was a reminder to him how he tried to fulfill God's promise by human effort. That same sign was used for the Passover. That was the message they should have remembered. It was the same message that God wanted Moses to remember when he had forgotten to circumcise his own child. I am sending you, but it's going to be my power that delivers the people, not you. You are simply the mouthpiece, the means by which I will do it. There's marital language as well as in Revelation. Church of Ephesus, remember your first love. Sometimes I yearn not for how I felt, the enthusiasm I felt when I first became a Christian, that excitement. I wanted to tell everybody. One hundred forty-four thousand. Oh, there's a topic that you want to open a can of worms, huh? But how are they described? You know, it's fascinating. Is how many different sermons and lectures I've heard on one hundred forty-four thousand. No one seems to address the fact what it means in God's eyes to be a virgin. Here's a little hint. If you go back to the Levitical laws, the high priest. And who's our high priest, by the way? Jesus. The high priest could only marry a virgin. Think about that. Then there's the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb that is talked about. Based on these texts, what might you think would be a good thing to study? Something cheery. Come on. Something cheerful, right? How about a wedding? So let's take a step back in time, and let's go back. Now, we have to be careful with analogies. Because the danger for us today is that we will look at the wedding through 21st century eyes. That we will think about our wedding in modern times and in our customs. But if we're going to get the the true picture of what Jesus was intending, what do we need to do? Logical, we need to take a step back in time, do we not? And go back to what was the wedding process in the time of Jesus. So I'm going to walk you through very quickly what that process was. First of all, the wedding process was actually in two stages. There was a betrothal, and I am going to butcher, forgive me, the Hebrew, even the transliteration of it called either the erosion or the Caducian. And then there's the actual marriage ceremony. And typically, there is a year between the two. Now, we might be tempted to think of the betrothal as engagement, and it might be somewhat analogous, but there's, as, you, as I share some things with you, you'll realize that probably not a good analogy. 
Also included in the process was a marriage contract. And this marriage contract had to be agreed to before the betrothal ever took place. Who arranged the marriage? The fathers. Do you remember how Abraham sent his servant, Isaac, to find a wife for his son, Isaac? Kind of repetitive, wasn't it? (laughs) The father of groom was also expected to pay a dowry, which the father of the bride would receive. Now, the dowry could be money, could be valuables, or it could be actual service. And we see in the case of Isaac and Rebekah, valuables were presented, money, silver, things like that. But in the case of Jacob and Rachel, what did Jacob, what was his dowry? Service. It's interesting, too, to note that the Jewish traditions say that, that the marriage was not necessarily seen as two individuals coming together but actually two families joining together. They looked at it broader than just simply two people. And what about that dowry? The dowry reflected the value of the bride. Now in the marriage contract, the marriage contract would outline financial obligations of the groom to the bride, how he was to care, provide food, shelter, protection, what he would do for the children, and would also outline the terms of inheritance. All this before the wedding ever occurred. Sometimes I think we should go back to that. I think it's a good idea. The arrangement, this marriage contract also, and I'll be honest on this part, I was a little disturbed with this one, but it also stipulated the terms and penalties for divorce. And I thought of our prenuptial agreements that have become ever so popular today, and it's almost like you're almost planning for failure before, and and I was a little unsettled with that. But as as I dug deeper into the Jewish tradition and what they talked about, there was actually wisdom in it, because the penalties were designed to be extremely painful. Painful upon the one filing for divorce. The dowry typically was very inexpensive, making it easy to get married, but making it difficult to get divorced. The marriage contract was viewed to be binding under both civil and religious law, typically signed by two male witnesses. Now let's go to that first part of the ceremony. The family of the woman would accept the money in the contract. At this point... The woman is legally considered the wife. The spouses do not live together until the marriage is complete. It can be dissolved by death or divorce. Keep in mind this concept of at the betrothal. I'm going to read to you from Matthew 18, or excuse me, Matthew 1, 18 and 19. Remember the story of Jesus and Mary? Joseph, Mary, finds that she's pregnant through the Holy Spirit, that what she has is a holy child inside. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before he came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. I don't know about you. I've read that story many times, and I'm sitting back and thinking, well, if you're married already, it's like, what's going on? But do we now see the framework that's being placed in? Because it's being placed within the framework of a Jewish wedding. It's a time of Jesus, the common practices. There would be typically a year's time between the, the the, the marriage ceremony, that betrothal, before the actual marriage ceremony occurred. During that time, the groom would be given a little portion of his father's house and property, and the groom was responsible for preparing the new home. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Put your name in there. Are you beginning to see the pattern? Now this should be the price, worth the price of admission on what I'm about to share next. Worth all the money that you paid to come and see. Guess who set the, the wedding date? If the father made the arrangements, it was the father as well who set the date. But on that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. I prayed long and hard whether I was going to digress a minute, but I feel, given where we are in time frame, that I need to digress just for a second. But the day and the hour, how many? No one. Do the angels know? Who's the only one that knows? God the Father is the only one that knows. The reason for, in, 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 for, the, for the idea of there being a way for the Father to be presenting is, is that the groom might get a little anxious and decide to take shortcuts to hasten the day of his wedding. And so to prevent that, the Father was given the responsibility the sole responsibility. We know the times we are living in. And dates are constantly being set. We see this both inside and outside of our community of faith. And I remind you that no one, no man, No angel knows the day or the hour. We have been cautioned time and again. And if you enjoy reading the spirit of prophecy, go back and read how many times Ellen White had to counsel people in the Adventist church against date setting. Because it happened, and it happened a lot, apparently, from as I've read. And people get very creative because I've, I've read, typically outside of our community of faith, everyone points to modern Israel and saying, this is the sign. This is when Jesus is coming back. They have rebuilt everything. The temple is going to be rebuilt. The Antichrist is going to sit in that temple and he's going to make a covenant halfway through. And he's... And there's going to be this seven years of tribulation where all of the people who believed are taken up before the tribulation occurs and all those who didn't believe are going to be left behind. And there's a thousand variations of this story. You know what's sad? Do you know where the idea of seven years of tribulation come from? It actually comes from the prophecy of Daniel 9.27. The very prophecy that tells us when Jesus was going to be crucified, when he was going to confirm the covenant. That's the basis. Things haven't changed, have they? Did they not accuse Jesus of doing the work of Beelzebub? Here's a prophecy that tells us about Jesus. And most of Christianity applies it to Antichrist. God help us. And if you question anything, I don't care how creative you can be with dates. I don't care how creative you can be with feasts. I don't care how creative you can be with with prophecy and time prophecies and all of this. If that verse didn't convince you and that concept didn't convince you, mull in these words. Found in Matthew 24, 22. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. So no matter how creative you can be with date setting, it's still going to be wrong. 
Now, I do have a question. This is an introspective question to you. If Jesus were to come back today, are you ready? And my words to you are this. If you feel you're not ready, then you don't understand the gospel. Did you catch what I said? Then you do not understand the gospel. Was the thief on the cross ready? Yes, he was. See, true faith is about putting our faith and trust in Christ and what he has done. And if you doubt, let me give you another panorama. Genesis 3.15 And I will put the enmity between you and the woman. Ezekiel 36.26 I will give you a what? A new heart and put a new spirit. But Joe, that was the Old Testament. Hebrews 8.10 For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. You want to say it with me? I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. Who's doing the work, folks? Me? You? I don't know about you. I can only can say for myself. But the more I try to do what's right, the more I fail. Sooner or later, Jesus is going to get it through the sixth skull for me to get out of his way and let him do the work. Let's continue now to the actual marriage, the second part of the ceremony. It's interesting because the tradition appears that this appears to be slightly different depending on the culture, location, and time. But there seems to be a general universal consensus. By the way, in gathering this information, I did not use Christian resources. I didn't trust Christian resources. Do you understand why? Because it would be very easy to be very biased and to force-fit things and to add things that may not have been there and maybe hold back things that maybe contradict my mind. I use purely and solely Hebrew resources, those who actually deny the bridegroom. This is what gives me confidence that there is a lot of truth in what I am sharing and gives me the boldness to share it with you. I love this part. The bride would be escorted in a grand procession and brought to the wedding ceremony. And now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and also no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Traditional Jewish ceremony then goes on to do seven praises. For time's sake, I will read just one of them for you. Praise are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine, you who created all things in your glory. Six of the seven blessings that are pronounced over the new couple actually focus on God and his glory. I think that's beautiful. Can I get a wow for that one? Thank you. (laughs) Now that we've seen the concept of marriage sprinkled through, we've talked about the parable of the wedding garments, the ten virgins, we have all of this. We have in Revelation about let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and it was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen. Whose linen are we being arrayed in, remember? Whose wedding garment? It is Christ in his righteousness. The second coming is frequently compared to a Jewish wedding. This is a major theme, by the way, if you pay attention to uh, end-time expositors outside of our community of faith you will find that there are a few that their sole presentation about Revelation surrounds the idea of a wedding ceremony. It is why it is so deceptive, because 
Who doesn't want to be drawn and go to a wedding ceremony, especially when you're going to be part of the wedding party? Unfortunately, whether it be for them or for myself, I have an inquisitive mind. And I get into this habit of asking questions. And I ask myself a silly little question. If there's going to be a wedding, there must be what? An exchange of wedding vows, or what the Bible would describe as a marriage contract, according to Jewish tradition. And it's funny how all of these end-time expositors to focus on the beauty of the wedding forget about the marriage contract, about the wedding vows. Do you know the Bible actually tells us what the wedding vows are? If you haven't guessed already, let me share with you a few scriptures. Isaiah 54, 5. By the way, turn with me on this one. Because this is a beautiful, beautiful statement. Isaiah 54, 5. If you would turn there, and when you have it, say amen. Amen. Read along with me, depending on the version. I've actually got the, the English standard on this one. I'm not sure why. Usually news in the King James. What does it say? For your maker is your husband. This is the prophet Isaiah, speaking some 800 years before Jesus, the analogy of the bridegroom. Ezekiel talks about God being his husband as well, too, the husband of Israel. He describes in very detail um, how he adorns the bride. It's very long, so I decided not to include it. And plus, it included a lot of jewelry, and I thought that might offend some people, that God would adorn his bride in jewelry. Jeremiah 3, 13 and 14, God is appealing now to Judah. The southern kingdom, the northern kingdom has already been carried away. The southern kingdom has fallen into the same apostasy and done worse. He said, you should have learned from your sister Israel, but instead you not only have repeated her errors, you have done worse. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children. This is from reading from 3.14, Jeremiah 3.14. Says the Lord, for I am married to you. And then this is the verse that actually caught me. As I was comparing and studying the covenants, I noticed that when, in Hebrews, it's quoting from Jeremiah, chapters 31, verses 31 through 33 about the new covenant, it suddenly dawned on me that there were some words that were not repeated in the New Testament. And here's what caught my attention. We know these words very well, probably. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Dropping down to verse 32. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in that day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. Did you get changed? Though I was a husband to them. What happened at Mount Sinai? Was it simply God giving a law? Or was it what Jeremiah implies? Wedding vows. Ask yourself, what are wedding vows about? To love, to honor, and to serve one another. Is it not? And what are the Ten Commandments all about? To love, 
to honor and to serve one another. I would submit to you that we can look at the Ten Commandments, not just as law, because keep in mind, God does use legal terminology. Typically when we think of the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets of the covenant, we always use the word covenant. Those of you who are scholars know that that's not how God referred to them in the beginning. He referred to them as the Ark of the Testimony and the Tablets of the Testimony. So there you have both the legal language and the relational language wrapped up together in the marriage contract, in the wedding vows. So can you imagine now, keep in mind that I probably missed this point, that at the marriage ceremony, the wedding vows would be read. The marriage contract. And so picture this. Yourself. Not the others. Not the person next to you. Yourself. Do you, the bride of Christ, promise you shall have no other gods before me? What is the principle? Loyalty and steadfast faithfulness. Do you, the bride of Christ, promise that you shall not make for yourself any carved image? We talked about that today in Sabbath school. Principles of faithfulness and serving God alone. Isaiah says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will give to no other, nor praise will be given to idols. To you, the bride of Christ, promise you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You know, one of the most powerful sermons that I heard years and years and years ago was a series on the Ten Commandments. And I believe it was Pastor Steve Bohr stood up. And I always looked at that as a baby Christian that taking the Lord's name in vain was as I stubbed my toe and something inappropriate came out. I think that's what most people think. And that is true. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. But it's not taking the name in vain the way God intended. If you call yourself and say you are a Christian, a follower of God, your character needs to reflect it. Because when you take the name, when the wife takes the name of the husband, whose character is now on display? The character of the husband. Don't take the name of claiming to be a Christian lightly. I'm not saying you have to be perfect. It would be nice if we could be. But that's God's work, not our work. But be cognizant of whose name you represent. Do you, the bride of Christ, promise Go through all the commandments. My caution to myself as well as you, be very cautious of throwing stones. Think about how you keep the Sabbath. You know, it's commonly said in most commentaries that I have read, people who are far more smarter, brighter than I, sit back and say that after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews never again fell into idolatry. But if we read Paul, especially Romans, I love Romans. It's a difficult book. You've got to be very cautious with it. If you don't understand Galatians before you go to Romans, I would highly caution you go back to Galatians until you get it because he builds off of it. Paul in Romans gives the simplest definition of sin, one that we typically don't ever mouth talk about anything not of faith is sin how much anything not of faith is sin Paul also magnifies the definition of idolatry someone shared with us this morning as well too anything we put before God that we esteem higher is idolatry Remember that the commandment says to create an image or likeness so it doesn't have to be a physical image. 
it would be very easy to simply throw stones at the churches that we know that use idols. But what idols do we have? I would submit to you that the Jews continued in their idolatrous ways. The only difference is, is the form of the idol changed. In place of Baal, they made the temple their idol. In place of the fertility goddess, they made the Sabbath their idol. Do you know that one of the reasons that they were put into captivity for seven years, 70 years, this wasn't the only sin, not by a long shot, but because they weren't keeping the Sabbath holy. In fact, if you go through scriptures, you'll discover seven times God used the Sabbath as a means to separate his people, those who trusted him and those who don't. But I caution myself and you, don't think simply because you have the day right that your heart is right. And so I leave that with you. Think about this beauty of what God has given us the invitation that he has given us. Think now about those ten words about wedding vows, as opposed to something being law. See, in the case of law, laws are what? They are imposed upon you. You have to do them. And if you don't follow the law, what happens? You have to be punished. Is that what happens in weddings, in marriages? If you do wrong, I'll forgive you, but I still got to punish you. What is the purpose of grace in a marriage? For the healing and restoration of the race relationship. There will be punishment for the lost. I believe personally that punishment will not be God specifically inflicting it upon them but on how people are going to react to his glory. Remember the parable of the seed. What was the difference? Was the word of God different or was the ground different? When Jesus returns, how did the redeemed look at Jesus? They shout and say, our redemption draws nigh, and the lost run. When Jesus was on the cross, what was his last words? Father, into thy hand, I commend my spirit. Is that your prayer today? I hope so. And the congregation said, Amen, hallelujah, it's over.